In a matter of minutes, club owner Carmine Coconato will introduce us, and the night will play out as the gods intended. Good evening, Cedarhurst, Carmine shouts into the mic. This is Glen Cove, you mook, one of the patrons shouts back. What do you know, Carmine barks. We got one guy who's still sober. It's the man's go-to line, and the regulars are aware he expects a laugh. They graciously oblige. Well, you're in for a real treat tonight, he continues. I can't think of a better way to finish off hump day, except for actual humping. This draws two hoots and a half holler. Maybe some of you are having a rough week at work. Maybe you caught one of your kids swiping your weed, whatever. The point is, ladies and gentlemen, help is on the way. And with that, two middle-aged men and two senior citizens pour out of a fart-clouded office and onto the small stage. Mikey takes his place behind the drums, I plug in my bass, and with the opening cry of help, Gene morphs into a transcendent John Lennon, Welcome this week's When They Was Fab. I'm Ed Chen. Today is just me. No John Stone. He's away on business. We were going to have Lonnie Pena, but uh, Lonnie's been called away on family business. So just me. But I do have two special guests. First off, Bruce Ferber, who has a new book out called I Buried Paul. Hey, Bruce. How you doing, Ed? Thanks for having me on the show. Uh, do you want to tell us just a little bit about the book? I suppose the first thing I should say, while it is a Beatles adjacent book it is not really a beatles book it's more a fictional character study that it is and the beatles play a main role in the story not the actual beatles but the phenomenon of the beatles play a major role in the story because like all of us the beatles were a heavy influence on the characters in this book so this book is really about a musician and it's about him and the creative process it was how creative people need to create that is part of our lifeblood and the main character in this book jimmy koslowski he has no choice but to do this for a living because he loves music and one of the jobs he has in the book is playing paul mccartney in a tribute band our other guest is the man who actually influenced you in the creation of Jimmy Koslowski, Joe Refino. He is in a bunch of things. He's played with the Monkees. He's played with Peter Noon. He's currently the musical director for Billy J. Kramer. And he has his own Beatle band, the Liverpool Shuffle, to take a line from Hard Day's Night. That is exactly what it is. And I, I always ask people as a trivia question at the shows, anybody that can tell me where the name came from, well, then I know you're a for real. Beatle fan. I like the way you pronounced my last name. That was quite European. <laughs> okay, how do you pronounce it? Uh, Rafano. Okay. I like that, though. It was, it was interesting. I'm going to have to tell my mother, my 91-year-old <laughs> mother. I'm going to have to let her know that I, I heard a new pronunciation. I've heard them all, of course. But uh... Hey, Ed, can I talk about Joe's influence on me? Yeah, sure. Go right ahead. Yeah, so this is what happened. I mean, I had seen the Fab Four before. Right. And so I knew of that existence. This was when I saw Joe's band, it was before I had seen the Fab Faux and maybe before the Fab Faux even was a thing. 
Well, so, the, the Fab Faux has been around for all probably 25, 30 years. Okay, so they were a thing, but I didn't know about them then. Okay. I knew about the Fab Four, and my late wife was the production accountant on Beatlemania the movie. So I certainly knew about that, and I knew there were tribute bands. She loves you, yeah, yeah, yeah. She loves you, yeah, yeah, yeah. Beatlemania. Is the name. One of the most original hits in Broadway history. It's, it's not the Beatles, but an incredible simulation. When I saw Joe, I saw Joe in a county park. I came back for a wedding on Long Island, and I saw this band, the Liverpool Shuffle, and they were fantastic. And I just didn't know that it was such a phenomenon. And it's a phenomenon that grew a lot since then, right? Yeah, it really has. Uh, I mean, okay. crazy. So I thought these guys were fantastic. I guess I only saw the first half of the show, but you guys played the songs. You weren't really that dressed up like Beatles, maybe a little bit. You were playing John. You had the Rickenbacker. Right. But then I guess maybe as I was leaving, I saw your van, which had all the costumes and stuff. And then I started reading more about Beatles tribute bands and realizing that all these guys are dressing up and one's playing Paul and one's playing John. And it got to the extreme that it is now. And I thought, well, if somebody is a musician and they're trying to make a living gig to gig, this is a legitimate gig, especially now in this world where there are so many of these guys and you see these ads, you know, right. I'm in Stockholm looking for a John, you know, <laughs> I mean, it's crazy. Yeah, it is pretty kooky. So I incorporated that in, in my book. There's different levels of Beatle tribute bands. Yeah. There's the the four guys that get together, you know, in some little town somewhere, and they just do their best to look like the Beatles. And some of them get wigs. Some of them don't go that far, but they all wear the shea jackets. Uh, you know, we do the the clothing to a degree, not as much as we used to. You know, we the guys that I played with were always superior musicians. Right, And we were more interested in playing the music, singing the music. That's the hardest thing to do in the Beatles band. You have to have guys who can actually sing. So, yeah, you know, we, I've gone through different phases with it. These days, I think I'm more concerned with it just sounding really good and having people enjoy themselves. We have a, quote, uniform. It's mm -hmm. All we do is wear white shirts and vests and black ties, sort of like what they look like when they were doing the later cavern years. Because it's easy, too. I don't have to get involved in all that. I'm more concerned about the sound being right, the amp sounding good, that sort of thing. You know, I mean, I know I'm not John Lennon. thing is that Beatle tribute bands, it's a funny thing. You can't do a whole show like the Beatles did because the Beatles didn't even do a whole show. 
half an hour, right? Yeah. I mean, 1964 is probably about the closest that anybody comes. I've seen them. Because they explicitly say, we're only going to do up to Rubber Soul. Exactly. I was playing in Vegas with the Hermits one year, and they were playing at some place. And we had a night off, and so we went and saw them. And exactly, you're exactly right. I get hired to do, for instance, 120 minutes. So that's either two 60-minute sets or four 40-minute sets. So obviously, one guy cannot sing all the McCartney. One guy cannot sing all the John Lennon. The Beatles didn't have a keyboard guy playing live with them. So you, it gets very complex as to try to manufacture a Beatles show that sounds like what people are expecting the Beatles sound like, because most people never saw them. They only heard the records. Now, I saw the Beatles in 66 at Shea Stadium. I was 14 at the time. Oh, dear. What a failure. We only sold 50,000. Miserable. See, we were, we were dying. Dying on our feet out there. Yeah, I'm, and there was big news about that. You know, they've only sold 50,000 seats. <laughs> you know, it's all over for the Beatles, says, you know, Roger Whittaker of the Dallas Times. Well, it looks like the bloom is off the Beatles. Last year, not an empty seat in Shea Stadium. This year, thousands, perhaps 15 or 20,000 empty seats in this arena that holds 56,000. Okay, I don't ever remember going there twice. That's pretty funny. Most of the bookings that I get these days are just the four guys, two guitars, bass, and drums. Occasionally, we will get asked to do a whole orchestral situation, in which case I bring in another bass player, and my regular bass player is a fantastic keyboard player and literally plays everything on the keys. But those shows are like few and far between. Generally, you have to have like a, a real concert show in a theater or something. I don't know. I'm not as dogmatic about what I do with the Beatle thing now as I was maybe 10 years ago. It's a little bit more relaxed, and I'm finding that people don't really mind. They're so happy to hear live Beatle music that, you know, they're not going to be worried that I don't look like John Lennon or that the bass player is not left-handed or we're not wearing exactly the clothes that they always wore. You know what I mean? I mean, it depends upon what you're going to see and when you're going to see it. Sometimes, yeah, you're right. Absolutely. It's just like you just go out and you, you want to have some fun. Although it's not an easy life. We have a band here called the Fab Five. Their shtick is they've got four guys who are Beatles, and then they've got a fifth guy who is their keyboard player who just sort of dresses slightly differently. Mm, that's funny. <laughs> We've done that too, but I don't know. Maybe I'm not as intense about it as I was 10 years ago, and I got plenty of work so i'm really not worried about it mm -hmm. we're not worried about what we look like <laughs> to finish that story they do all the costume changes and mind you they play outdoor summer gigs in the middle of houston when it's 100 plus degrees oh fahrenheit my god <laughs> oh. i've been there joe biardi who's the paul in the fab five he will literally come off stage sweating buckets oh my yeah. gosh yeah, that sounds about right i mean the beatles were playing at chase stadium in august and it was like a, a sweltering day, and they were wearing those Shea jackets. You know, that's the worst they ever had to do. I mean, of course, they were at the Cavern, which was a steam room. But I've had to do gigs where I was dressed in a pepper jacket in the summertime. It's ridiculous. That is crazy. I assume you guys both read the Craig Brown book, One, Two, Three, Four. Yep. Yeah. Um, he does a beautiful little thing where he talks about tribute bands and the people who go to see tribute bands, and especially if they see them in a theater and the lights are down low, and if the tribute band is good, it really, for them, they're getting as close to the magic of the Beatles as possible. Now, I'm doing an event, which is sort of in perfect keeping with my book. I'm doing a book event with a Beatles tribute band at my tennis club. So they'll be playing on a stage, on a court. And these guys, as far as I can see, do the whole nine yards with the wigs and the pepper outfits and all this stuff. And the amusing part to me is that everybody's going to be able to be up close. <laughs> you know, you're going to get to see all this stuff 
And it strikes me as it's slightly less magical when you see the wigs and stuff up close. Would you guys agree with that? Uh, absolutely. The Fab Four, they did a TV thing. They actually won an Emmy for their TV show. But the thing about that was it was in high definition and the cameras, oh, when, they, when they came in close, you could see that the sideburns were literally just electrical tape on either side of his head. Oh, my God. That's hilarious. Oh, boy. That that's, is that's... just so funny. Years ago, we were playing at a casino, a uh, resorts casino over by Kennedy Airport here in New York, and we had to do three sets. So, we, you know, tried to break it up chronologically, uh, and we were dressed somewhat appropriately. And then we decided to do like the later stuff at the end. And we had the pepper jackets and we were in the dressing room. And I said, just for fun, I'm going to paint a mustache on. <laughs> and nobody knew it. And they, people were like, who's that guy? <laughs> they, didn't, they didn't realize that it was me. I mean, it was kind of hilarious. That is funny. That whole thing is so weird, though, because, I mean, I get people, I meet people will say to me, oh, you're in the Beatle band. You must be McCartney, right? And I never thought of myself as McCartney ever, but it's like 99 out of 100 people say, oh, you're you're McCartney, right? So maybe it's because I have hair and I have a round face. I don't know. Maybe I have the same eye color as he does. I tell people, certainly not the young McCartney, but maybe I look like the old McCartney. It's so goofy. I mean, the guy who's supposed to be McCartney, so the people would tell him, well, you know, you kind of look like George. <laughs> you know, and the other guy who sang half of the George stuff and I sang half and I sang half of the Lennon stuff and he sang half. He didn't look like anybody. I mean, he used yeah. to wear a hat because because he had a bald spot. I mean, you know, it's just so goofy. But I mean, going back to the Beatlemania days, you only ever really needed one ringer. You got one which looks Correct. pretty yeah. good. And yeah, Mitch Weissman. And then the rest just falls in line. Right? right, Mitch Weissman. Right. Well, that brings up one thing I wanted to mention. So you were after Joni Loves Chachi when you started your TV gig, Bruce. Is that right? Joni Loves Chachi. I was working when that show came on, and people thought this was going to be the biggest show ever because these shows all get filmed in front of a studio audience. So Joni Loves Chachi, as you know, was a spinoff of Happy Days. And I knew some of the writers on that show and they would come in to my office and say, this is the biggest hit ever. The audience went crazy. Well, yeah, when you get a couple hundred people in your studio audience who are Scott Bayo fans or something like that, and they're screaming, you think you have a hit show for America, but it doesn't always work out that way. The long story short is, yes, I was around when they started that show. I mentioned that because that was the first instance of a crossover between a sitcom and a Beatle band. Mitch Weissman actually guested as not Paul McCartney on an episode of Joni Loves Chachi. Huh. There you go. The whole thing was kind of sort of a play on Paul is dead, but not really because Mitch Weissman was Paul in the hospital oh, and Joni and Chachi do... Joni and Chachi things, trying to prove he either is or is not Paul McCartney. I have proof. What? You know what he's in the hospital for? What? Exhaustion. <laughs> Real people get tired. Only rock stars get exhaustion. <laughs> he's using the name Marvin Opazica. Can you believe that? Well, that about wraps it up for me. No, no, no. Wait, wait, wait. Both names have 13 letters. Okay. Marvin's initials spell M-O-P. Well, they're the mop tops, right? Right. Okay. And he's in a semi-private room. S-P, which means C, Paul. Boy, that's scary. <laughs> that is really frightening. But, you know, I was there. Bruce was there. I mean, we grew up with this whole thing. And it, it, as the years went by, it got more and more bizarre. It just does, because I guess... It's a real commentary on our society. People just need something to latch onto. And they, they just, when you get a lot of people all at the same time latching onto things that maybe they don't understand completely, it gets weirder and weirder as it goes. And I think John and Yoko were victims of that too. I mean, the guy fell in love with an artist. Okay, he got divorced. A lot of people get divorced. But she was treated like a dog. I mean, for no reason. And he was being attacked from every side because of what he did. I mean, it's just so ridiculous. He divorced a Caucasian blonde woman to marry this weird little Asian chick. 
She wasn't even right. blonde. She could color her hair. Mousy Brown was the he, actual right. color of Cynthia's he hair. Liked, <laughs> he, liked, he told her that he liked Bridget Bardot, so she tried to look like her. I mean, but, you know, the whole Paul is dead and all that. It just got more and more ridiculous because people were just looking for something to connect with. It's like the whole tribal thing in American politics. You know, it, right. the Beatles became like a tribe thing. And uh, even now, it's like as the years go by, even young people – are getting even more and more involved with the tribe. The same See, that's, the, that's the weird, scary thing is that there are people out there who are still looking up Paul as dead clues. You know, it's like, okay, if Paul died in 1966, we're talking about 60 years ago. 60 of the 80 years of the professional life of this guy is the phony. Who cares? Yeah, it's, it's absurd. So that's, I guess the phony guy did the whole wings thing. He did the whole McCartney thing. And I guess this guy that's on tour, all those guys are playing with the phonies. I guess somebody should interview them and find out if he's really the real McCartney. It's so silly. The other sitcom I wanted to mention was there's an episode of The Golden Girls, which I mentioned to you. It is partially the bane of my existence because like everybody else, I've got a Beatles list search on my DVR. And for years and years, every month or so, the same episode of the golden girls called the commitments would come up and it's like oh geez not that again <laughs> oh boy i've uh, never seen it but i know the guy who wrote it blanche or somebody is dating a guy who is supposedly paul or sometimes george in a geriatric beatles cover band which is funny because geriatric in the 80s is 50s not that old now there's a video on YouTube, it was on for a long time, about the day in the life of a Beatles cover band. And they sing, I want to hold your hand in a sort of like minor Jewish key. It's hysterical. Yeah, yeah they, they do a have a Nagila in there also. <laughs> yeah, it is so hilarious. guys actually kind of look like the Beatles. That's one of the funniest things I think I've ever seen about it. But the whole Beatles cover tribute thing, it amazes me. It really does. Everybody loves the Beatles. I understand it from that point of view. But from the point of view of everybody wanting to have their own Beatle band, that's pretty crazy to me. I mean, it takes a lot of work. You need equipment. You need people who can really play and sing. People are really, really dedicated. The last time I looked it up, there were over a thousand of them. I'm sure. Every city, every town, as you note in the book, there are eight separate municipalities in the United States named Liverpool, and all of them are named after the Beatles Liverpool. There's one in New York State. Yeah, I have it in my book. There you go. It's pretty wild. I got introduced to the whole Beatles tribute thing. I guess it was about 2005. Herman's Hermits was doing a show upstate New York somewhere. I think it was either Syracuse or some theater up there, and the opening act for our show was a Beatles tribute band, and they were called the Kaverners, and they were actually English guys, and they had all the guitars, they had all the clothes, they wore the wigs, and well, we didn't even know they wore the wigs until after they finished, and they came off stage and they took the wigs off, and the, every one of the four guys had a shaved head, <laughs> which was pretty funny. I mean, we were like, wow, this is 2005. You know, it was funny. We were standing in the wings, and the guitar player, who still plays with Peter Noon, who's a friend of mine, I'm going to see him tomorrow, actually, said to me, do you notice anything odd about this band? And I said, yeah, something is just not quite right. This, this gentleman I'm talking about is perfect pitch. He said, well, that's because they're singing and playing everything at a half step down. Their guitars are tuned to E flat. So I was like, oh, because when they were playing, I saw her standing there. It just didn't seem quite right. But anyway, so that was my first 
being exposed to an actual band playing live in front of a you know five thousand people doing Beatle music. And when I got back to New York, I said, "Boy, that would be fun." Silly me, not realizing that there's quite a few Beatle bands out there already. But of course, at that time, you had '64, you had the guys in LA, you had Fab Fall, which they weren't huge yet. There was Strawberry Fields, which had you know done the whole Beatle mania thing in Manhattan. So I'm thinking, ah, so there's a handful. So maybe there's room in that world for me to do a little thing and maybe get some gigs on the road. And wrong. Within, you know, months of that, it seemed like every town had a Beatles tribute band. And all the guys in those bands were like desperately trying to branch out. So they would do like songs that Beatles never did or stuff from the BBC shows or they would add Ringo, Lennon and McCartney and Harrison solo music to the shows. It just kept getting crazier and crazier. You know, Matthew Street Festival in Liverpool every year, the bands come from all over the world, and they literally, thousands of bands come to play. I mean, that should have been the, the tip-off right there, you know what I mean? <laughs> you know, you have pretty steady gigs, Joe, right? I do, because people knew me from when I was really young, and I played in, you know, all the typical classic rock bands that we all played in. Right. So everybody knew me, and I've been doing the Beatle thing now since 2002. Wow. So it's like, at this point, People who didn't even know me from all those years ago know who I am now, and it's just easier. They know that we do a really good show, and then I'm a reliable, professional kind of guy, so they know if I say I'm going to be there Tuesday at 8 p.m., I'm going to be there. But who knows? I don't know. There's still a lot of bands getting like low-level type gigs, but it still amazes me that there's so many. It really yeah. does, but it's a testament to the Beatles. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Ed, I wanted to ask you, so if you had to choose between the Fab Faux and the Analogs, what's your pick? Well, I'd like to see the analogs because not only do they get the sound through just playing close instruments, they actually source the real versions of the instruments. They go with the serial numbers. They find as close as they can get to the Holy actual moly. model used when the songs were recorded. Really? They are incredible. I mean, I just got turned on to them recently. I saw, I started watching the YouTubes, and I was just mesmerized by them. Yeah, unfortunately, they're never going to come to the States because they cannot source the gear in the States. Oh, Where are they? In England? Yeah, Primarily in England, but yes, throughout Europe. Wow. They're amazing, Joe. I, I mean, I've seen the Fab Faux live, and, and they're great and everything. But, you know, I saw these guys, the analogs, on YouTubes. I'm sitting here watching a YouTube and just blown away by this musicianship. How many is actually in the band? I, I try to count them. It, it varies from night to night, or do you have a standard band that goes with everybody? Because you got all the horn players and the, the yeah. other people. That... The standard band is five people, and then we have one uh, percussion player, yeah. percussionist. Okay. Then we have four strings and four horns. Yep. So that's about 14 people on stage, tops. That's yeah. a lot of people. Yeah, it is, but it's a good fun, and I mean, uh, it's, it really brings life into the the whole uh, late Beatle thing, you know. If if you need those those people to really bring it, you know, get it across to the audience, I think. Other than the the person singing it, and they make a pretty good shot at doing the singing, but you know, I mean, it's not the real thing, and you know, it's not the real thing. But the, as far as the instruments, what's playing at any given time, the sound is exactly correct because the loops are all absolutely correct. Bruce, do you remember you remember our friend Jeff Levitt? Very well. I know he's got a band. He's got a cover band. Well, he's plays in several bands, but as far as the Beatles thing goes, they have a band out there called the Moon Dogs. He told me, yeah. They did George Harrison stuff, they did the White Album, they've done some Sgt. Pepper stuff. They have lots of folks on stage and they do a reasonable facsimile of the music. The vocals are tough. Yeah, you know, I would go see them because it's Jeff. But I do have like a limited bandwidth for this stuff in a way because there are so many of these bands. I love seeing you guys. I saw you guys way before this whole phenomenon right. <laughs> really exploded, and it was just great. And your guy at that time, I know he's not in the band anymore, but he actually looked like Paul McCartney, and he was great to see. But now it takes something like the analogs to just really get me, whoa, I would see the analogs. In my personal life, if I'm going to listen to Beatle music, I'm going to put on the remastered albums. Right. And I don't even listen to music in my house that much because I am so involved with music that it's overload. I know this is going to sound really weird, but I have absolutely no interest really at this point to go see a Beatles tribute band. 
I hear you. I mean, I love Beatle music and I listen to it regularly, but I mean, I don't listen to it as regularly as I would if I wasn't involved with this. I mean, I listen to mostly jazz fusion stuff. I'm a huge Pat Metheny fan. Mm-hmm. And I've, I've seen him six or seven times. to certain Beatles songs that I've listened to 12,000 times. So when I'm listening to the Beatles, the stuff that really excites me is stuff like Hey Bulldog, right. uh, One After 909. I've got <laughs> a Which feeling. we do all the time. <laughs> you do One After 909? All the time. That's why the Beatles channel is so good. They try to play a variety of things, Beatle-wise. Of course, you know. I don't have it, so... <laughs> People have it say it's great. I have it, and I've told you, Ed, I've listened to their Apple Jam show, and I've got turned on to this album by Doris Troy that I'm just, uh, I just absolutely love. George Harrison produced this, Joe. I don't know if you've ever heard it. Doris Troy. I've heard of Doris Troy, yeah. Incredible. Do you know Fred Guarino, Bruce? No. He owns Tiki Studios in Glen Cove. He has been nominated and has won Grammys. He's done albums with Debbie Gibson and uh, Odetta and Melanie. And he actually does a lot of recordings for the Beatles channel. All the Billy Joel stuff, all the interviews that you hear with Billy are all recorded in Glen Cove Mm -hmm. by Fred. Cool. Billy did a series where he went through the American albums and he actually, you know, talked about Mm. bits and pieces in between there. The most cool thing about that was when he was talking about In My Life, he played it live at speed. So he can actually play George Martin's double speed. I play with a couple of guys that can do it also, but... uh... You know, I don't even know what you're talking about. The uh, piano solo. Piano solo, yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah, they slowed it down because George Martin couldn't play it. He knew what he wanted to play. He knew all the notes, but he couldn't do it. They slowed the track down because in those days, analog and all of that. And he played it, and then they played it back at the right speed, and it sounds like a harpsichord, but it was actually just the piano. So when Billy Joel was talking about Rubber Soul on the Beatles channel, he actually sat down at the piano and played it in real time. That's pretty cool. Well, I would hope that Billy Joel could play that piano solo in real time. It's not that hard. <laughs> Trust me. <laughs> okay, I will believe you. The guy that I'm business partners with for the last 30 years, Paul Brokaw, the two of us have been composing music and songs and what have you for many years together. He plays with the Mead Brothers Band, another very popular classic rock band that's been on Long Island for God knows how long. Got to be 40, 50 years. They do it all the time, and he plays it. So, And if he can freaking play it, He's he's older than me, for Christ's sake. If he can play it, it's not that hard. Bruce could probably play it, I'm sure. Three months to learn it. But Joe was the first guy I ever knew who could play, I guess, are they two guitar parts of And Your Bird Can Sing? Do you play two parts at the same time, Joe? Yeah, but you know, let's. I'm glad you brought that up. We had this conversation the other night about that. When the Beatles recorded it, they did it like the Allman Brothers. McCartney's playing one part on one track, and George is playing the other part on another track. That's what I thought, but you did both. Well, I did a reasonable facsimile. It sounds just like it. I've got some of the key notes and phrases, but there are guys who can do it even better than me, but I've listened to them all. Nobody can play it exactly the way they did it. It's physically impossible. Right. Um, Joe Walsh comes close. Very close. And Joe Walsh is an incredible guitar player. I would think that he could do that. Don Felder is another guy. I'm sure that if he really wanted to work it out, he could do it. But you can't actually play the exact same thing that they played. It's just impossible unless you have an extra couple set of fingers. Yeah. 
you know, and also you'd have to have a huge hand because this, maybe if Jimi Hendrix could have done it because the spread between notes in certain places is just so far that, you know, I'm sure somebody can do it. I mean, I don't want to sound like the, the professor here of Anya Bird can sing. Somebody could probably do it. It impressed the hell out of me. Well, there you go. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. <laughs> Even just coming close is pretty impressive. I stopped playing it, though, because I okay. said, you know what? Why should I subject myself to this torture if I hit one wrong note? It's the, the people in the audience, the Beatle audience, they're so maniacally tuned in. So if you hit one wrong note and they will obsess about the fact that you played one wrong note for the next six months, forgetting about the fact that everything else sounded great. So I said to myself, yeah. why am I doing this? Ed, what you got to understand with old guys like us who were there when the Beatles broke is that we were all sitting there by our record players playing the songs over and over again, trying to figure out what the hell they were doing. Oh, and, crazy. and it took hours and we still couldn't get it right. And then you bought the sheet music and you had to work your way through that. And none of it really got you very far. And now here we are in a world where there are thousands of bands who play this stuff note for note. It's just insane. People who aren't even musicians who grew up with it, I mean, the obsession is really beyond belief. I mean, I've had people send me messages, email messages. I love your band. It's the greatest Beatles thing I've ever heard. But the bass player wasn't left-handed. <laughs> I'm like, okay. You know, and the drummer didn't have a big nose. I mean, just silly stuff like that. You know, it, it, sometimes it just gets to the point where it becomes really kind of ridiculous. I, I do a whole thing in my book about the drummer's nose. I've always thought it's the John nose that you need more than the Ringo nose. You know, John used to say that about Ringo's nose, too. He said, I never noticed it. I was too worried about my own. <laughs> it's funny, funny, when Ringo combed his hair back, he really he never really did notice his nose. It was only when he combed his hair forward that people realized, hey, that's a pretty big nose he's got there. <laughs> but I mean, even McCartney always talks about Lennon's amazing nose. It had so much character. Yeah. There's a guy out there who is doing solo Ringo. Uh, he calls himself Ringer Star. And he also didn't used to think he looked like Ringo. The only thing he thought looked like Ringo was his nose. But it turns out that he went to a fest one year and people swarmed around him thinking that he looked like Ringo. And so he did the modern Ringo hairstyle and put together his own, quote, all-star band, unquote, i.e. Yeah. whoever he can get to play with him. But... Ringo was wearing that like pseudo crew cut for a long time. But then this year when he grew his hair, we were all like, yeah, Ringo grew his hair. <laughs> I mean, that's cool, man. I'm glad he grew his hair. He's 82 years old and he grew his hair. I dig it. <laughs> Although I kind of wish he'd stop dyeing it. I'm, I'm really actually glad Paul stopped dyeing his. Yeah, that looks much better with Paul. With Ringo, you got the dyed hair and the dyed beard. Now, now wait a minute, boys. Let's not get into dyed hair now. Okay, we won't. But how about dyed beard? Can we go there, Joe? Uh, well, I don't have one. No, um, that's why we can go there. We, can you insert some video into this podcast? Because I can show you some photographs that you would absolutely die laughing. I didn't shave for two and a half years at one point, so that was a while ago. That's one thing about Beatle bands. Almost none of them try and do the beards. I guess it's just because fake beards look so fake. Oh, there are yeah. very few good-looking fake beards. Oh, uh, yeah. It's well, it's like the Lennon, the beard in A Hard Day's Night over the years. I mean, it's just ridiculous. You know, when Ringo, he let his beard go gray for a while, and it looked good. And now he's back to shoe polish. I mean, it, it looks terrible. But God bless him. Hey, you know? in my opinion, Ringo gets to do whatever Ringo wants to do at That's this right. point. First off, just getting to 82, yes, you're allowed to do whatever in the hell you want to do. And second, he's Ringo Starr. Well, he's 12 years older than I am, and I know how I feel sometimes when I do some gigs. I feel my age, I feel pretty beat up. And for him to be 82 and traveling, the traveling is what kills you. And it's not just that. I mean, you know, he was originally this year going to do a summer and a winter Two separate runs of about 20 shows. COVID came down, unfortunately. Right, right. And so he lost a couple members of his band. So he, he had to cancel the summer run, but he didn't cancel it. He just appended it to the front of the winter run. So he's going to go out and do 40 dates over roughly two months in September, October. It's like, it's crazy. Well, that's mind blowing. I mean, I can only speak from my own experience, but I mean, I would go out with Peter Noon and we would do week and a half. And, and I was a lot younger then. And I'll tell you, by the time you get back, you feel like you got beat up. And their shows were a lot longer than the ones we did. But what kills you is the travel. You get to a city, maybe, I don't know, 10 o'clock in the morning. You go check into your hotel. 
you get shuffled here, you get shuffled there, you set yourself up in a room, then they tell you four o'clock is the sound check. So you show up for sound check and you do your sound check, maybe it'll take an hour. You know, maybe you, you, if you're lucky, you get like a, a little sandwich or a beer or something backstage. I'm sure his accommodations and his arrangements are a lot better than we have. But then it's over. You go back to your room. You fall in the bed in your room because you were up at 3.30 in the morning before to catch the plane to get to where you are. And then you go do your show. And the shows are typically 60, 75, 90 minutes. And then it's... 10 o'clock at night and you got to get up at 3.30 again the next morning because the limo is going to pick you up to take you to the airport. You do that 10 days in a row. And let me tell you, that's tough. And this dude is 82. Now, I know that he's got the best food. He's got people attending to his needs. But you still got to get up and get on the yep. plane and fly and get to the next place and do the sound check. I mean, it's hard. McCartney is amazing. He'll do a three-hour yep. show, not even drink a sip of water. He finally will take a drink of water, and he makes a big show of it in the middle of the show now. Oh, does he? Well, you know, he's 80 now, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. But uh, but that's always been the deal. And, and I've always thought, why are you doing that, Paul? It's not a show of strength for you not drinking water. And the other thing is he just goes on and on. That's a long show. I mean, Bruce Springsteen used to do three-hour shows when he was 30 years old. I <laughs> mean. I mean, yeah. this guy is 80 years old. Yeah, there are some accommodations. He's got his vegetarian chef, and he's probably got his private plane, and he's got his masseuse. But it's freaking hard to get up at the early in the morning and get on the plane, and then you got to do a sound check, and then you got to play for three hours, and then you got to, you know, he's Paul McCartney. He's got to bullshit and talk to people afterwards and schmooze, and it's very, very, very difficult. Then, Joe, when the tour was over, the guy wants to go celebrate his birthday in Greece, and the paparazzi are all over it. Oh. You know, so gross. One of my friends is in the current iteration of Hawkwind with Nick Turner. Now, that guy is riding the country in a van and doing that mm -hmm. same thing. It's like, mm -hmm. he's have the same age. The, have you read the uh, the Dave Grohl book? Yeah. I'm, uh, I'm reading it now, and when you see what those guys went through, Four or five guys sleeping in a van, literally on top of each other, a day oh, in and day out, barely having enough money to buy a pack of cigarettes and maybe a beer if they're lucky. And, you know, when somebody would invite them to come and sleep on the floor in their house and they would cook dinner for them, it was like they won the lottery or something. I mean, yeah. then the Beatles went through that, too, when the Beatles were touring. Yeah, you know, Hamburg. And, yeah. And also in 63 in England. Going back and forth to London. Yeah. I yeah, mean, and going to Scotland and all these places in a van in the wintertime. And I mean, crazy. So they earned it, you know. Yep. Yep. But you would think. That OK, when they were 80 years <laughs> let's, let's old, get back. They would <laughs> okay. want to keep doing it. <laughs> Let's get back to your book for just a little bit. I got a couple of things I wanted to ask. Okay. You've got a bunch of characters that seem to be at least nominally Beatle influenced. You've got a kid who comes on and plays keyboards for their live set. Was that sort of a Billy Preston riff? I wasn't thinking of it. You know, I mean, like I told you, Ed, when I set out to do this, the Beatles tribute thing was a part of it. I just wanted to let myself go and have fun with the tribute band thing and the wigs and the boots and the costumes and, and all this stuff. And what I tried to do, as I told you, is just really kind of respect the music. And if there was a Beatles tribute band in the book that didn't respect it so much, I pointed that out. But for the most part, I wasn't really looking for Beatles references like that, except for obviously there's a Yoko character in the book that everybody will see, but not so much. Like, for instance, one of the characters, Joe, in the book, his name is Gene Klein. And Ed asked me, <laughs> oh, you must have been thinking of Alan Klein. And I, and I really wasn't. I just wanted Gene Klein to be a Jewish John, and I wanted a simple last name to use. It's funny. I, we did a show about three months ago. One of the little perks of the show was they were having a Yoko Ono lookalike contest, which was pretty funny. And they, they even said, you don't have to actually look like her. You can wear a wig, makeup, however you can make yourself look like Yoko. It's cool. Well, that's sort of a part of my book, too. Not a contest, but part of it. It's funny, you know, all these Beatle docudramas and the various biopics, Yoko does not look the same in any two of them. Right. John Yoko, A Love Story, or there was one in the UK called Lennon Naked. Any one of these, you look at it, it's like, well, again, like you have in the book, she's not 
anywhere near Japanese looking. It makes me laugh. So, you know, Ed, when I started to get obscure in the book, and obviously you guys know more about this stuff than anybody, but I have one tribute band in the book, Joe, and the name of the band is Shirley's Wild Accordion. Now, Ed, (laughs) had you ever heard of Shirley's Wild Accordion? Well, yeah, sure. I mean, it's a Magical Mystery Tour reference. Okay, so Ed knows it. It's a Magical Mystery Tour instrumental outtake. And that's the name of this band. And that was about as obscure as I could get. But of course, Ed knew it right away. <laughs> oh, that's funny. That's like Death Cab for Cutie. Exactly. Oh, well, that works. It's interesting then, you know, you can read whatever you want to read into it. The other character that I thought was kind of sort of, well, there were two. I mean, the lost daughter, it's like, oh, well, that kind of reminds me of Kyoko. <laughs> The whole John and Yoko trying to find the daughter thing. And then the main love interest, the nurse, it's like the divorced woman with the child. It's like, oh, well, that's kind of like Linda was at the, in the late 60s. But none of that was intentional. None of that part was intentional. That was all about a musician's life. And you're on the road. You know, you have your one night stands. And who is that child you had in Tampa, Florida that you never got to meet? That part was more about that. Gotcha. You know. Well, it's interesting that the spirit manages to find its way, or like I say, maybe I'm just reading too much into it. That part you're reading into, but the rest, you totally got it. You got what the book was about, and even though it wasn't all Beatles all the time, it kind of stirred you enough to ask me to be on this show, and I'm grateful for that, so thank you. And then the other thing, the weekly gigs, you kind of have them playing songs that I'm not sure any... Beatle band out there actually does like I've never heard a Beatle band do Lennon Stand By Me for example right so one of the things about this character that I really wanted to establish is that this guy wasn't going by anybody else's rules and one of the things that he is he's very passionate and he believes that if he feels the moment he's going to play a song and it makes his Beatle band more like a real band than all of these people doing Beatle Band by numbers. And that's part of his character and who he is as a person. And I really wanted to have a character like that rather than just, I'm the John and I do exactly what John does all the time, what John would do. He'd stay to the set list. Maybe John wouldn't stay to the set list. He probably wouldn't in the early days, right? He always wrote it out, though. Yeah. Although, you know, once they got past Hamburg... He didn't bust the set list that often, even though he might have had the opportunity. It would be Paul who'd be more likely to call an audible. Right. Probably true. Right. Right. Well, people ask me, in my case, about set lists, and I just go off the top of my head. It's great. When you've done hundreds and hundreds of shows, I mean, I pretty much know what I'm going to do, but I don't need a set list. I just yell, and everybody just knows what it is. (laughs) The Fab Four will tend to stick to a pretty solid set list, at least on their touring show. Now, I mean, it's a little bit different when they're at home. Well, you have to. The arrangements and everything are so intricate. I mean, you, it's kind of tough to just, like, fly by the seat of your pants. It's a lot easier when they've got, you know, two guitars, a bass, and the drums, and everybody knows what it is, and all they want to know is what's the title. It's a lot easier. As a matter of fact, I have to do a gig tonight. I really have enjoyed this. It's been really cool. Joe, when you read this book... You're going to see that one of the characters, he's got a lot of qualities of a guy that we grew up with. I've not read the book, but I guarantee you I know who the guy is. This guy, his end was not a great end, but um, he was the guy in our high school that everybody said, he's the rock and roll star. This is the guy who's going places. And my guy who has some of his qualities does not have the same tragic end. But when you're growing up, you're influenced by the Beatles, of course, but you're also influenced by the guy in your school who is the best musician or the most charismatic or the guy you think is going to be the rock star. So I was glad that I got to write some of his qualities into this book. I knew that person and I actually performed with that person. So yeah, cool. I performed with him as well. That's so. right. So I, it's, <laughs> it's nice that he got a little tiny piece of anonymous immortality yeah thanks joe thank you for coming on the show do you want to tell people where they can find you are you going to be at the fest this year in chicago uh i you know i think i'm playing there with billy so they haven't given me 
100% confirmation yet. I mean, I did play with him at the New York show. Yeah, if you do make it to the fest, I will be there in Chicago uh, in August. So thanks for being on the show. Thank you, Joe. Well, thank you. Joe, it was really fun. Oh, thanks. Very good. So how did the Beatles actually influence your writing and your TV work? For anybody who was alive when they came out, I mean, we were all so influenced by everything they did. In terms of my television work, I don't think I ever got the opportunity to use them in my television work because paying for those songs would have been prohibitive. And also, I worked a lot in sitcom, so we couldn't use a a lot of outside musical tracks anyway in the the live action sitcoms. So in terms of actual using Beatles stuff, Beatles subplot, no, there was really nothing. But all I can tell you is that their influence in everything I do has been huge. I mean, I was around when CDs came out. So what was the first thing I did? I bought every UK version Beatles album on CD. Although that was two years after CDs came out. You know, as with everything, they took their time to get onto that medium. But the minute they came out, I was right there and I was hearing this music in ways that I hadn't quite heard it before because, you know, you needed to have a really good stereo system to. It it always amazed me that growing up when we were listening to it on the records, the Beatles stereo separation was crazy. You know, Ringo singing what goes on out of one speaker and absolutely all the music coming out of the other one. It was nuts. But the CDs provided like sort of a different way of looking at it. So the Beatles, they're in everything I do. So it's a vague general answer. I can't give you a specific of how they've influenced my writing until this book, where obviously they're all yeah. over it. You mentioned briefly the White Album box set. Have you picked up all the deluxe editions? And what do you think about the work Giles Martin has done? I listened to them on Spotify. You know, I loved hearing the Esher demos and all that stuff. And there's nothing that I can criticize. One of the first people I asked when they did the Love Show in Las Vegas, I asked Joe what he thought of all the mashups. And he was very vague with me. He said, well, I don't know. I don't know what to think of them. but you know what? (laughs) I thought it was great. It was just an interesting way of putting these songs together. Is it my first choice when I want to really listen to a Beatles song? No, but I enjoyed the show. I enjoyed what they did there. I love the love show, the sound system, all the work and care that went into it. I mean, it's, you can tell that George Harrison was involved and, you know, Guy Liberté and the whole even the stage presentation, whereas I consider myself less of a artsy-fartsy Cirque du Soleil kind of guy, I got into it. Me too. It's like all this stuff. I'm on a bunch of Beatles Facebook pages, and every day you see a picture you never knew existed. It's crazy. And it's fun to see all this stuff come out. Yeah, it's a real shame that there's at least a pretty good chance that love will be ending at the end of this year. They sold the Mirage, and the Hard Rock now owns it. And, you know, that's the stupid thing. It's like, you're the Hard Rock. You have a Beatles legacy. You're going to end this show? Right. But that at least seems to be the case. That's certainly the rumor. We don't know what will happen next. We never knew. We didn't know that the movie yesterday was going to happen. And by the way, do you know when I saw that movie? No, tell me. Yesterday. (laughs) The reason I saw it yesterday was because throughout the writing of this whole book, I didn't want to see it. I didn't want anything because I knew there was going to be stuff in there that I really loved. And I didn't want to be intimidated, you know, in doing what I was doing. So I I just said I was going to wait. And the other day, I guess it was at my book launch. I had a book event for I Buried Paul. And one of the questions was, of course, you've seen yesterday, right? And I said, no, I haven't. And that motivated me <laughs> to watch it immediately. So I, I saw it last night. Well, did you like the film? I did. There were points where I was a little bit confused by the alternate reality. And when did those points happen? The John Lennon thing, I had to just sort of piece that together because I couldn't hear the words. Sometimes when you're watching this on the TV, British accents and stuff, the the clarity wasn't there. So the clarity wasn't there for the key alternate reality scenes for me, the two people 
who lived in the alternate reality, who knew the truth, and the John Lennon, who, of course, was in the alternate reality. And it was really hard for me to hear their crucial dialogue. <laughs> and so I figured it out afterward. But I really enjoyed it. I found it amusing, but I didn't like it as much as I thought I was going to. There's a lot of things about it which, as a Beatle thing, I think I prefer your book. Not to give you a little ego boost there, but I mean... Why not? Why not? I mean, sure. Danny Boyle has a great, great career, so he doesn't need the ego boost. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> the film does actually bear at least a little resemblance. The musician who's trying to make it doing their own thing and then sure. suddenly finding their way into this world of the Beatles. Oh, is Jimmy supposed to be a mediocre songwriter? I I, I don't know how you meant, but his original lyrics... Ugh. Okay, his original lyrics, you only heard one, in True. all fairness, Absolutely. you only heard one stanza, and it, and it was sort of a sentimental song for his daughter. So you can't be that down on him. Not so much that, but the other one, the one when he's in his house and he's talking to his cat about the, what is it, the, the political, the Russian thing, and I forget exactly what it was, but it was a very weird... Yeah, he's writing like a weird, he's writing like weird lyrics that he knows are weird, and he cops to it immediately. He says, this is probably not going to wind up on the album because it's, he's what he's doing, he's writing about Nazis, He's and he's name-checking uh, Bormann and Himmler and these other Nazis. He's got all this crazy stuff in his head that he's writing about, and he says that these lyrics are kind of sort of Randy Newman-ish, but he cops to it that they probably won't wind up on the album when he does his solo album because he's in the woodshed, as musicians say. He's working out all the ideas in his head, and some of them will be thrown out and some of them will stick. At this point, Gene welcomes the crowd in a thick Liverpool accent. Amazingly, it's not that awful, considering his normal speech lands somewhere between Judge Judy and a Queen's cabbie who bought his medallion in 1965. For our next number, I'd like to ask for a bit of help. The people in the cheaper seats, clap your hands, and the rest of you, well, if you just rattle your jewelry. This yields mild laughter from the two patrons who recognized the John Lennon line from the Beatles' royal command performance for the Queen Mother and Princess Margaret. Gene doesn't care if his patter is to inside baseball. He views it as essential history and part of the fun. Our next number will be sung by Paul. You'll remember it as the B-side of the Elp single, which is from our second film entitled... Gene cups his ear, waiting for the crowd to respond. Marsha's caregiver, Lupe, shouts, Help! She's been through Gene's basic training. That one knows her onions. Gene smiles. He looks over to give me the signal. Paul? I love the first line of, I'm down, because I got to belt it pretty much a cappella. You tell lies thinking I can't see. You can't cry cause you're laughing at me. It's me channeling Paul, channeling little Richard. I get to smile, wink, and howl at the blonde who's now on her second Chardonnay. I loosen up fast, unconcerned that I might be pushing too hard or ignoring some of the other Paul fans in the house. In these moments, I get why Gene loves what he does. With all the speedy places real life takes us, when we're on this stage singing these songs... The music never lets us down. Never. Even if we're playing Taxman to an audience of three, it's still of Taxman, and nobody can make it any less brilliant than it is. Well, except Perry Parker from the Ronkonkoma Beatles, universally regarded as the worst of the grade D Long Island tribute bands. It's really been great uh, to talk to you, Ed, and thank you for reaching out to me. Uh, thank you for appearing on the show. It is a great book. Like I say, we have to let people know that it's not a Beatle book, and some Beatle people have been reluctant, shall we say, to dive into the world of fiction, but it's a lot of fun. Thank you so much. And for those who do, who are willing to dive into the world of fiction, hope you like it, and just a pleasure to be able to be here with you. All right. Thanks. We'll be with you next week with a new show. All right. Thanks, Ed. Take care. Bye-bye. Subscribe to When They Was Fab on iTunes, Podbean, 
Stitcher, or wherever finer podcasts are found. Please join our Facebook group, and we can be reached at WhenTheyWasFab and on Gmail. The opening theme was written, produced, and recorded by Jay Young Kim, Feast or Famine Studios, San Francisco, California. Carmine corners Gene, informing him that a little Liverpool goes a long way. Gene responds with a shrug, then turns into the mic and counts down one, two, three, four, one, two. Prem's signal to rip into Taxman. As always, the Mumbai native's rendition is a wonder to behold. Gene's minor quibble being that since Indians pronounce their W's as V's, it reduces the powerful last line to, You're working for no one but me. The show proceeds to our Let It Be finale without further incident. On a scale of 1 to 10, I give the evening an 8. Musically, we killed it. But two points must be deducted for the unremarkable crowd size. I tell you one thing, there's sickness going on and there's some good people doing work in hospitals, but they got no bread to do it on. Not only are they working in a miserable condition with sick people, but they're, they're scraping the barrel for funds to keep going. Turned up nice again. <laughs>